actually recording, but um, just give me some chat. Tell me about the cheetahs or something, just while I check this. Cheetahs are really cool animals, and they've got lots of spots. <laughs> on average, cheetahs have about 2,000 spots on their body. Are you serious? And uh, if you shave their skin off, they still have spots on their skin. Really? Huh. Well, I mean, that wasn't even supposed to be part of the podcast, but I think I might open with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and this is a Modern Huntsman production. I'm recording this intro from the outskirts of Johannesburg, just prior to getting on a plane to Windhoek to work on a new project um, all about uh, rhino tracking and rhino conservation. So if you can hear planes and helicopters and birds in the background, that is why. Uh, a quick update on the last couple of weeks. Uh, apologies for the sporadic podcast going up, but there has been a very good reason for that. Uh, in that I have done, I think now, 20 interviews as part of a new series for this podcast called Uplands. We're calling the, I think I'm going to call the, the series Uplands. And it's looking at the future of the uplands in the UK. There's a lot of things that apply to aspects of land management happening in other parts of the world as well. But my focus is specifically in the UK, where I live most of the time. Uh, and I've been, I've been busy with it. <laughs> We've interviewed a large number of people from practitioners on the ground to some of the leading scientists in the world when it comes to fire management and peatland and carbon sequestration. It's a really highly produced podcast, a lot like the Mozambique series we did from the field, uh, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about now. Uh, so that's what's been taking up my time in the last couple of weeks, and those kind of shows which involve a lot of people and a lot of investigative journalism just to take up a lot of time. Uh, so forgive me for this being a little late, but I know what I have lined up for the next couple of weeks, and it's gonna start with this podcast. Now, if you cast your mind back to episode 200, and then every second show after that for three shows, we did a series called From the Field. It was recorded in Mozambique. I was there with Tyler Sharp, editor-in-chief of Modern Huntsman. And we were there documenting the work going on at Zambezi Delta Safaris uh, with the Cabela Family Foundation. Ivan Carter was there. We were working with the guys from the Conservation Film Company as well. Uh, and it was this incredible story about reintroducing cheetah to their former range um, within the area that is managed by Mark Haldane and the team at Zambezi Delta Safaris. So I produced a three-part series, uh, which I, if you haven't listened to that, I'd encourage you to go back to episode 200 and find those and listen to them. They're one of my favorite series that I've ever produced. And it's exactly the kind of, the kind of podcast and the kind of work that I love to do. Um, so this Upland series that I was telling you about is gonna be much more like that. There is also some behind the scenes shorts, if you haven't seen those, which go along with the Mozambique from the, Fe from the Field series, which you can see on the Modern Huntsman Instagram. Uh, in the reels, you can also visit my website, byronpace.com, uh, look at film shorts, they're all there as well. And of course, we covered the story in volume eight, the African volume for Modern Huntsman, which you can still buy on the Modern Huntsman website, modernhuntsman.com. There was a big spread in there. We talked about a lot of the work uh, that we, we were doing and documenting in Mozambique in that volume. But in the process of putting that series together, I had to cut out large chunks of the interviews that we did with all the people who were in that series. And so I thought, 
why not share these full-length conversations with you because you've missed out on so much great conversation. So I'm starting that today. You're going to hear from Willem Breislow. He is a conservation biologist uh, at Zambezi Delta Safaris. You're going to hear everything from uh, the 24 Lions project to the actual what it takes to go and dart and collar lions, his background, his history, how he got into the amazing job that he's doing now, uh, and some of his views around conservation in Africa and how that's going to function and how he sees safeguarding large landscapes and large carnivores and facilitating landscape conservation across the continent. I'm joined in this episode by Tyler Sharp. Uh, we were sitting outside the cheetah enclosures where these newly reintroduced cheetahs were being held for a period of time before being released into the wilderness around there. I mean, this is now eight, more than 18 months ago. So if you want to get some updates on how they're doing, just also head over to the Zambezi Delta Safari's Instagram, and you'll see lots of updates and uh, videos and, and pictures that will tell you how those cheetahs have been doing and they've reintroduced more uh, since. And it's been an incredible success story by all accounts. But I have another update of what's coming in the next couple of months. Along with the Upland series, I have a new four-part series called From the Front Lines, which is being supported by Rocky Talkie Radios. Uh, the first two episodes are going to be coming to you from Africa. I'm going to be recording them this month into next month, so hopefully they should be released. The first episode should be released sometime in June. I'm going to be speaking to conservationists fighting the daily fight for nature from the front lines. I'm currently here working on different film projects for a couple of months, so I thought this was the perfect opportunity to not only use the radios in action, uh, but also speak to some brilliant people. Uh, I actually end up using radios all the time in film productions because often there's somebody who's a long way away that you're trying to ask to do something, walk over a ridge, over a mountaintop, and you can't always shout. So I'm gonna be using these radios for the first time in anger over the next two months. They're incredibly compact little radios, and if you want to read the full specs, you can check out their website, Rocky Talkie Radios. Uh, there's a link in the description. In brief, USB-C charged, will operate down to minus 20, five mile range, up to a five mile range in the mountains, up to 25 miles line of sight. Um, most importantly for me is their size and weight because I'm always carrying a lot of gear, and they're tiny, and they can fit into the little pouch that I use to carry lenses with. They've kindly offered all my podcast listeners, 10% off. So if you head over to rockytalkie.com forward slash into the wilderness, it'll take you to a page where you can order what you want and you will get 10% off. I think it's a pretty good deal. I'll be bringing you more from the field in the coming weeks, but for now, go and check out Rocky Talkie Radios. And the last thing that I have to say before we dive into this brilliant episode with Willem is to say thank you to all of my Patreon supporters who absolutely make it possible to do these more highly integrated podcasts from the field. And this week, they include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Escher Stalking, Dick Ekstromer, Mark Zabrowski, and Leslie coming. Thank you so much for your support, and thank you to every other Patreon supporter uh, who is not necessarily a top tier, so it doesn't get a name shout-out at the front, 
but every single one of you is massively important to allow me to keep doing what I'm doing. And actually, I, I was on my Patreon uh, page a couple of days ago. I'm quite bad at updating that because I know that all of these podcasts go to your podcast feed and so you're notified. And often if I'm on the road and I'm filming and I'm traveling, then it takes me a little while to update the actual podcast on the Patreon account. I'm assuming that's not where everybody is listening to these anyway. Um, but I've changed the Patreon page to not only be supporting of the podcast, but actually all of the other work that I do, um, because often it is the case that the film projects that I think are the most important film projects that I want to do are very difficult to find funding for. Um, Paid in Blood, which you've heard me talk about on this podcast, is a great example of that. Um, getting the last funding in place for post-production has been a real nightmare. Um, I've had some incredible support from some people, uh, but getting, getting industry support around projects like that can be a challenge. And so I've changed the Patreon to not only be supporting podcasts, but also um, the films and writing that I do as well. Um, and I'm going to try and be uh, a bit better at sharing things on that platform. But if you really want to see the day-to-day -day of what is going on, follow me on Instagram, and uh, also go, I don't send a lot of newsletters out, but um, we're gonna sli be slightly better at doing that as well. Um, head over to byronpace.com and you can subscribe to any updates. And most of my most recent work is on there as well. Enjoy the show. Willem, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Coming to you from Mozambique, which we have for the last couple of podcasts we've recorded. But the last 24 hours plus have probably been one of the most exciting days of my life. Right now we're recording with two big male cheetahs kind of eyeballing us through the cruiser that we're hiding behind for the wind uh, out in the bush here. And last night we were catching leopards out of trees. Uh, I think I want your job. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome, David. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're going to hand it over so easily. <laughs> um, uh, Tell me, I mean, that's a, that's a taster of what this man does on a day-to-day -day basis. Take me right back. Actually, I, I'd like to understand how you ended up getting here in the first place, your kind of career progression and, and what you studied to be able to do this. Because this sounds like a fairy tale. <laughs> no, it is. Definitely is. Uh, very much a privilege to, to be working out in the bush with some incredible people, incredible animals as well. So from my background, um, I started off with a, a bachelor's degree in conservation ecology, which, which was done in South Africa. And uh, with that, I started to develop a, a, quite a passion for carnivore, carnivore research. And um, that led me to doing some research with, with leopards. Um, I followed my bachelor's degree up with a, with a master's in, in a Southern African country called Malawi. Uh, and that was focused on the reintroduction of three, uh, well, of two uh, top carnivore species, so uh, the leopard and lion, um, and that kind of shaped where I was going with my career path. So I really found carnivores super exciting. Um, there's never a dull moment with them, and. Uh, after I finished my master's degree, I followed up um, with, with a, 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 my first official job, which was in Namibia, um, north of Vintuk, about three hours, in a place called Ochivarongo. And I they, well. they, they did some, uh, some research with, uh, with cheetahs, uh, leopards as well. Um, and that was, you know, kind of 
almost validating what what I studied and and applying the research um, in a in a conservation context, which is on a broader scale. And um, that was that was where I was about two and a half years ago, and um, suddenly a position popped up in in Mozambique, and uh, it was focused on a lion reintroduction project. Uh, the project's name was Twenty Four Lions, and uh, it was a a new project and a project in an area where there's basically been no research before, which to me is very appealing. Um, I love the idea of of coming to an area and knowing that there's basically nothing known about the area. So it kind of gives you the opportunity to to have a bit of freedom and to really follow what what you want to do. And um, I was given the the opportunity to join the team here at uh, Zambezi Delta Conservation um with some incredible partners um the Cabela Family Foundation being being the the core donor and uh it's really been uh, a roller coaster ride so far it's two and a half years in and I'm still loving it <laughs> what an incredible opportunity i i actually didn't know that this was your first job here and obviously this is our first time to visit and i've i've met mark several years ago but um yeah i didn't know that that you were actually joined on from the beginning of this project. And I can only imagine how exciting it is to see, you know, something like yesterday where we actually collared the first, or I guess, yeah, the first, second generation of lion, the first lion cubs born here. I mean, what kind of moment was that like for you? It's awesome because with the, with the lion reintroduction, the, the kind of measure of, of the success of the reintroduction is, is by having gen, the, the next generation following the founder population to breed. And so we're at the point now where the first generation is actually reaching adulthood. And that, as you say, I mean, that gave us the opportunity to collar one of those individuals yesterday. Um, and with that, we really get to understand how this population is starting to expand within the, within the ecosystem. And, um, it's yeah it's really it's exciting stuff <laughs> tell talk us through that process like like we were doing today and, and Tyler did with you a couple of days ago explain to people what collaring lions here is like because it's an amazing feat of aviation i mean we had three helicopters in the sky today you're you're tracking somebody with a dog and like explain that whole thing from getting up in the morning and saying today we're collaring lions it's it's quite difficult to explain, but <laughs> but we'll augment it with pictures. <laughs> that will be quite helpful, I think. Um, so, firstly, to explain the ecosystem, I think is is probably the most important. See, thing. this is the scientist in him coming out. It's like <laughs> you've ju- you've jumped to the cool shit. <laughs> let's let's, let's, let's go back. Let's we need to we need to create ecosystems first for lions to exist. In. You're yeah. right, Willem. Let's talk about ecosystems. <laughs> yeah. So the Zambezi Delta ecosystem, it's it, the kind of the name says it. So it's a delta ecosystem. So it's a it's largely consists of a floodplain. Um, the floodplain is basically grassland that is inundated with water for six to eight months of the year. It's huge. It's and yeah, oh, we saw huge. it today. Exactly. Wow. And and the entire ecosystem is it, it covers just under a million hectares, which is incredibly large in size. Um, and the road network within the concessions with, within the area are fairly limited because of the fact that it's, there's a large portion that's, that's floodplain that you just cannot drive, drive with a vehicle, which in other areas you're able to do. And so you're able to drive a road, dart the animal next to the vehicle, collar the line, fairly, fairly simple. So out here, 
we don't have that luxury. <laughs> we we have to use helicopters to to firstly track our lions, and then also to to collar them. And so, we're very fortunate to have um, a few helicopters which we can use um, for for tracking. We've got a a Robinson Twenty Two, which is a, a small little small little thing. Um, we call it the dung beetle. Um, <laughs> well, because of how it moves around in the wind. I don't know if I'm allowed. <laughs> You can. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on uh, <laughs> on this channel, but uh, it's uh, it's it's kind of a, a inside joke. It's it's a dung beetle because you got to know your shit to fly. <laughs> I can see that because yeah. uh, in the wind that thing does it becomes a little bit like a ragdoll if you if yeah. you don't uh, if you don't know it too well. But um, so we've got a small helicopter that we use for for actually tracking the lines. Um, and then we've got a few bigger helicopters that we use to to dart, and so with the darting, it can be it can be a smooth operation, but it can also be challenging. And um, this afternoon we we tried to to dart one of these lines, and she was just giving us sticks. Uh, she she was sticking to a forest area. You try and move her around, try and work her with the helicopter to try and get her in a place that you can dart her, and um, sometimes they just don't respond to the helicopter. So. Even with the helicopters, you have challenges. But in a, if I can put it in a, a general context of, of how we go about actually darting, darting the, the line is, if the line has a GPS collar on it already, we can actually have a GPS point, position, a waypoint, and we can fly to that, to that position and we locate the individual that we, that we need to, to dart to, to recollar or to put a new collar on. Um, and with that... Generally speaking, you've got one helicopter that's that's flying, um, that's that's looking for the, searching for the line, and that will do the darting. And um, you usually, this is a little bit more on the technical side, is you usually want to have the line in a, in a bit of a run, so that you can dart it from from the backside. I noticed um, that today. Yeah. Yeah. So and and uh, it's not easy. <laughs> the the lines are often running f at full speed. Um, the helicopter is, is following. Um, firstly, the 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 pilot has to know know his his uh, how to do. He needs it. his shit. He needs to know his shit. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you the pilots you have here are just some of the yeah. most insanely good pilots. Exactly. The most insanely good pilots I've ever flown with. Yeah. So I must say, one of them does have roughly about ten thousand hours of of flying time, which is quite a quite a major milestone is that for Peter Peter, Peter yeah. Pilstein, yeah. I believe that qualifies you as a master yes. in, in a, I forget who said that, that it takes 10,000 hours to... Oh yeah, of course, yeah, for anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for any. wow. Yeah. And also when, when it comes to the game work, it's 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 almost less about, uh, particularly in the game game capture, game darting industry, it's, it's a lot more about knowing the animals and, and, you know, being a good pilot, it kind of comes, comes with time, but Knowing the animals is is probably the most important thing because you've got to be able to read them. Yeah. Exactly. So, so if he you know knows like lines moving this direction is probably going to cut like that because you've got somebody out the back of the helicopter, the vet, exactly, with his finger on the trigger, waiting for that tiny, tiny, tiny window to be able to put a dart in the back end of a lion. Exactly. And so so fortunately, we have <laughs> we've got a few pilots that that are really experienced, um, and we. I'm going to name drop as well. <laughs> Go for it. Um, we've got uh, an incredible vet um, that is based in, in Maputo, in, in Mozambique. Uh, his name is Dr. Joao Almeida, and um, he's done most of our, our uh, darting and, and collaring of, of lions, elephants, um, and a bunch of other species as well. And um, he's just, you know, really confident. So he's the guy that sits behind the pilot 
and he's darting out of the helicopter as the pilot's getting closer to to that cat. Now there's a dude who's enthused by his job. <laughs> I was watching him today in the helicopter and I was like, you love every second of this. Like, <laughs> no, he does. You could see him savoring it. Yeah. And yeah, Joao's got a lot of Portuguese swagger for sure. Oh, of course. <laughs> you can't be in Mozambique without it. <laughs> yeah. I almost feel like he probably would have been like a high-end footballer if he wasn't doing this. Yeah. I, I asked him if he liked football. He goes, I would not be Portuguese if I did not. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then from, from, from that point, the dart goes off. It's a successful hit. What's next? Well, for, yeah. If it's a successful hit, you are pretty happy at that moment. Um, often the dart does does end up missing missing the uh, the line. Um, but, but to be fair, in the four collarings that have happened, five collarings in the last three days, he's hit every single one. Exactly. He has not missed since we've been he here. He did miss one today. One, but one we won't, we won't, we won't oh, he did miss. <laughs> oh, we won't. But you've also darted an elephant. I mean, an elephant's pretty big. But yeah. still, I mean, yeah. it's still difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, um, but an elephant as well. Because, you, I mean, you're moving in a moving yeah. uh, object. I know trying to film from one of those bloody things. It's like, <laughs> it's almost impossible. It's vibrating yeah. and swishing. and No, it's, it's, it's very challenging. But, so, let's, let's take the example of you, you've darted the animal. So the animal's been darted. It's, it looks like a good dart. The dart's gone, gone in the rump, in, in the leg somewhere, um, which means it's, it's in the muscle. The, the drug inside the dart, which is, it's a specific combination of drugs with a specific dosage. The dosage varies based on whether it's uh, an adult, a youngster, um, a male or a female. Um, and it, it's kind of more on the size of, of the animal. Um, and so the, the dosage and, and the combination of drugs um, will take roughly, the, the one that, that Dr. Joao uses, it'll take roughly around six six to eight minutes for the animal to, to fully be sedated. Um, and so as you as you witnessed um, with, with the line colorings, is w- what you end up doing is you, you would like that animal not to go and hide in a bush because if that animal is not fully, fully asleep, you have to walk in there and, and and confront that animal on foot, which is is not the safest thing to do. So ideally, what you would like to do, what the pilot's the pilot's job is to try and circle around the lion and try and position the lion in a in a place where it's fairly open and it's it's minimal risk to the people on the ground walking in. If that makes sense. Yeah. And 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 this is why today it was really th- thick thick grass. I mean, some of it was like as high as our heads. You went in with some safety. Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, yeah, a back backup. Back so, up, yeah. so we do, we do take rifles with if we if we because it can in. go wrong. I mean, we're <clears throat> kind of joking around here, but exactly. like this is actually it's. I'm I'm amazed how relaxed everybody is, and I guess mm. that's just a sign of the professionalism and skill and the fact that you guys have done it a lot of times. But yeah. there's a lot of things that can go wrong. No, exactly. And I think the most important thing, what's, what's worse than fear is, is complacency. If you get used to used to the setup and every time you dart a line, you think that line's down. If you're not, if you're not paying attention to that animal, things can go wrong. And that's when, when the rifles are used. But if you're, if you're paying attention and you're watching the animal's behavior. So for example, if, you, if, the, if the line is, is 50 yards away, 50 meters away, and you can see the animal... You wait first, you give it a second, you don't walk directly up to the animal. 
if you have a stick or a you know something something to throw at at the at the animal, you try and hit it on the rump, not in the face. That would be quite, yeah, not not too great. But you try and hit it on on the leg just to see if it reacts to that. Because with the the drug combination that that Doctor Joao uses, it's it's quite the animal's still quite sensitive to to stimulus. So whether it's sound, um, visual stimulus, so lights in in the eyes, um. Uh, you know, s- some kind of noise that 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 causes them to, it it causes them to wake up for a few seconds, and during that period, it's it's a dangerous period. You only need a few seconds with a lion or a leopard. Exactly. Things go wrong. Split seconds. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, lying on the ground, we're in like we like we were today. What's the the next procedure? I mean, maybe you can explain. Th- I mean, this. Clearly, the way you've described it, it's it's a lot of work. It's a, a big investment, both in time and resources. Why go to all this effort for the collaring? It's a good question because it it's flying choppers around is is not it's not cheap. Um, secondly, the the collars that we're purchasing are also not cheap. Um, and then following on on that is you've got the the tracking of of the animals which is also in, a, in as i said in the in the dung beetle um which is also you need you need funding to be able to have that helicopter in the air to be able to track the lions um so it, all of this is it's not cheap and i guess the question is why do it why, why do you actually what is the purpose of of collaring the lions what you know why can't we just let them go yeah. and Especially so when they're doing so well exactly yeah but the thing is we only know they're doing well because we've collared them mm-hmm. so there's always that saying of knowledge is power, and I think with the more you know, the more you can react, the more you can conserve, the more you can manage. And so, by coloring these lines, we can see exactly where their home ranges are. We know exactly which prides are moving where, how they're interacting with each other, um, whether there's mating going on, whether there's reproductive events going on. For example, if if a, a female lioness is 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 showing a star-shaped pattern. We know that line that lioness has got cubs. Um, we can follow up, make sure that the cubs are fine. Um, we've had, you know, if we we could even follow a few events of infanticide, which is which is when a, a another male lion comes in and kills the cubs of a female because it's not his. Um, and that's oh, so you've seen that happen here. I know that it happens, but you've actually been able to log we, that. We haven't witnessed it, but based on the collars, we. We know that it happened because one of the females was showing star-shaped pattern, and another male came in straight into where that female was with the cub. We witnessed that cub that day, that night he came in, and uh, the day after the female started moving in long stretches and in a in a continuous pattern, not in a star-shaped pattern anymore. Cub gone. Cub gone. Amazing, and you, the the incredible thing is you're able to tell this with some pings of data being exactly. uploaded to exactly. the sky. Yeah. And and following up as well. Yeah. So I think we we from our side we just keep praising the Cabela Family Foundation for funding the the collars as well as the the tracking because without that, with such a vast landscape, it's as I said, it's it's about a million hectares. It's which I think if my con- conversion is correct, I think it's just over two million acres. Yeah, it's it's, almost, it's about double, I think, yeah. per acres. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it's a massive area. There's no fences, which makes this place really incredible. Um, 
most most places in in or a lot of places in southern Africa are fenced because that that prevents the animals from moving out. But it takes away the wildness and it takes away the fact that the animals can can move out of the area and you know kind of utilize a broader area than being restricted to a specific area, you know, with with the fencing. So we don't know if these lions are going to move out of the area. They probably will at some stage, but we'll only know if we have collars on them. Um, and at the end of the day, we don't really want to put a collar on every individual. It, there's, there's a lot of beauty in, in seeing an uncollared lion in an open landscape. It's, it's something really special. We've been able to witness that now with, with the, the second generation of, of cubs being born. Um, and some have reached adulthood already and they're starting to disperse. And so that's really incredible to see. Um, but our kind of main goal is to make sure that we have the prides the, which are made up of the females and, and their cubs, their offspring, is to have those pri- as many of the prides as possible monitored so that we can see how they expand, how they, how they split off, how they come together. Um, and that then helps us provide the... That, that provides us with the data and we can use that data to inform management of, of how we actually conserve the species going forward into the future because it's cool to bring in lions but the long-term monitoring is actually what what will make sure that we can make management decisions so for example offtake of of lions you know if, if it comes to that that's that's one aspect that would why op- would you need to why might that be something that needs to be done so, um, like the offtake of lions so it's so because the area is it's a hunting area so there's there's four concessions within within the Zambezi Delta complex. So each concession is is roughly between one thousand and, and two and a half thousand square kilometers. Um, and there's also Marumau National Reserve, which is is pretty much a swamp a swamp habitat. It's it's not it's not a typical reserve that one one pictures in your mind. It's it's fully inundated with water for ninety percent of the year. Mm, wow. And um, what what people tend to think is that you know there's always the the controversial trophy hunting debate but if you take this landscape there would literally not be a single animal left if it wasn't for hunting and hunting has actually saved this area because what it's done is it's brought foreign clients in at a critical time just after the the Mozambican civil war which lasted for about two decades um that in combination with rampant poaching led to a decline of epic proportions in this place. 95% of wildlife populations declined, um, including elephants, buffalo, hippo, all the big stuff. No one really knows about the small stuff because no one was monitoring that. Um, but with the hunting taking taking over, um, or, or at least starting up again, um, it's actually led to one of the most incredible recoveries of wildlife in Africa, in the world. Um, we've seen numbers increase by over 3,000%. Um, we've had... 3,000%. That's incredible. For example, buffalo, they used to occur in about a population of about 45,000 in the entire complex. The numbers that across all the concessions? Uh, so that's, that's the entire landscape. Yeah. Then the numbers dropped to about 2,500, actually under 2,500 individuals from 45,000. And we're now at... The last count was was about twenty twenty two thousand. So, so it's, it's getting right back up there again. Exactly, and that's it's all because it's it's been 
provided the protection that it needs. Um, so with, with the protection, it's able to, in a way, sustain itself because it's such a productive system. It's grassland, there's tons of water, tons of food. Um, and one of the key components to, to bringing in, or, or one, of, one of the reasons for bringing in the lions was, was to return the apex predator to the area. And it's it's one of the most iconic species in Africa. I mean, if people think about lion, they think Africa, Simba, Lion King, you know. And uh, with with lions coming in, there's there is potential that the population grows to a point where it's it starts filtering into the community areas. And so that's also something that one has to consider. You know, how do you, how do we manage these lions? Are we going to are we going to cull lions? That's what people do in 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 reserves. If if the numbers get too too many, you're talking about fence reserves. Fence reserves, yeah. yeah. But that's probably not particularly well understood because a lot of them don't publicize it. Exactly. But and but they'd have no choice but to do that because otherwise they lose all their game. Exactly. So so or or you'd have this population crashes. Exactly, hundred percent. And so with with lions in particular, you have you have a few options. One one common option is is translocation. Um, translocations are not easy. It, I mean, just you've heard about the Twenty Four Lions project. It's it's a massive, massive undertaking to move lions. Um, that's that's one option. Another option is is contraceptives. So so using contraceptives on, on females, um, but in a way that's also really interfering with with the biology of the animal. Um, personally, I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm the greatest fan of it, but it you know some places have shown that it works. Um, and then another one is is what do I say, translocation, contraceptives, culling, and along with culling in a way is, is, is hunting, but it's, it's utilizing animals and actually having it as a, as a value. Um, I mean, people, people don't like to view animals, particularly the, the carnivore species with a value, but unfortunately that's, or I wouldn't say unfortunately, it's, you know, these animals are there to be utilized. Um, we we are in a, a wildlife utilization area, and it brings in a significant amount of money that can be put directly back to the anti-poaching, and that money can help conserve the area into the future. I mean, it's it's incredible when you explain it like that. You're, you're very logically step by step. It makes complete sense that you have to have this this hands-on approach, yeah. as opposed to this stand back and let nature do its thing which would be fine i guess but for one key element of everything that you just talked about there which is that people also exist in this landscape exactly yeah and and is that about managing human wildlife interactions and conflict then yeah so that that comes down to it will eventually get to that point so currently just just to give an idea of of the the context of Zambezi Delta is the, the the line numbers are roughly at about just over 60 at the moment. We started off with 24. The population has, has almost tripled. Um, in two years, right? In, it's about uh, just under three years. Just under three years. Okay. That's, uh, that's just crazy. It's incredible. Yeah. And uh, that yeah. they've, I mean, obviously there's a standard rate that lions are breeding, but they've been, they've been breeding, but you've been able to protect them. Exactly. And so, we have lost a few on, along the way, which in any in any situation, any reintroduction, it, it, it will happen. 
Um, initially, when you started, there were a few lines males, which was was quite a, I think, a hard loss for us because we brought in more females than males because our idea was we need the females to to reproduce to have cubs, and um, it worked out that way. But we did lose a few males to to things like snares and gin traps, and um, those are the main main forms of poaching within our area, with, within the Zambezi Delta complex. Maybe, I'm sure most people are familiar with the term snares, but maybe quantify what a gin trap is. Okay, so maybe a snare is also something that, that it varies. So okay. a snare can be a rope, it can be, I guess, a string, it can be a, a, a wire, it can be, in, uh, in Afrikaans we call it um, blowdraught, it's like very, very tough, tough wire. Piano um, wire? Yeah. Um, Godfather style, but but what's <laughs> what's even worse than that here is is that um, it's that that wound cable, mm-hmm. and um, that stuff it it just doesn't it doesn't break, um, and it will dig into skin. It's 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 pretty horrendous when you see see an animal with that around its neck or around its foot. Um, so that's a snare. So it, do, it does vary, but unfortunately, yeah, we've we've got that 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 um, that cable cable wire, and then a gin trap. That is one nasty thing um so it's i think in the states it's similar to a, a bear claw, like a, a bear trap bear yeah trap. um and the ones that they make here in in africa are from leaf springs from mm-hmm. a vehicle and they are fairly large in size um how would you say yeah like size? six to eight inches across yeah yeah, yeah like a small dinner plate yeah and um some large enough to fit your your whole foot inside mm-hmm. And if that thing comes down on your foot, it is one painful experience, and you might even lose it. Um, and, and would it break? Because these are homemade gin chaps, yeah. Yeah. Would it break your foot as a human if you stood in it? It it probably would. Yeah. Um, it it generally breaks breaks the feet of of the antelope species, mm. and and the targets are you know animals like nyala, reedbuck, um, you know, sable, sable beast. and um. And once that, once that, um, so so basically, when the animal steps on it, the the trap closes onto the leg, and um, then that animal has to walk with this, with this uh, gin trap around its leg, and the animal can't go very far. Um, and so, what ends up happening is that animal will die right there, and then the poacher will come and collect his his prize. And uh, I guess the biggest thing with with those is that they're just super super unsustainable ways of of harvesting. Um, they're not based on any quotas. They harvest, you know, it's an offtake of males, females, youngsters, mature individuals. Um, and what they'll tend to do is is they'll target a specific area. And in the past, they used to put thirty, forty snares, um, maybe ten, fifteen gin traps in one particular area, not even that large, just. Make sure that they cover the whole area. If any animal walks in there, they'll they'll catch one at least. Um, but with the with the increase in in the efforts in the anti poaching, the the incidence of that occurring is is minuscule. Um, we've got helicopters doing doing anti poaching patrols as well. And what we find is is that these poachers they they tend to stick around for a day, if that. Um, sometimes they do end up. Getting lucky, and they get they get a day or two in the in the area. But soon we we on their tracks, and the, the anti poaching is able to to make arrests and and remove all the poaching activity that's that's within 
within the area. Because you you said that in the past they would come in and, and like camp out. Yeah, exactly. And be here for days or weeks. Weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Some even months. <laughs> really. Yeah, because fortunately, so so with with the hunting concessions is is they they tend to close close season from uh, between December to to about March April. So for three four months of the year, you can have very little activity within the concession, but having anti-poaching present during that time has a significant impact on on catching the poachers and removing the the poaching activity. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, we're, we're going to talk to Mark about the details of the anti-poaching, but from your perspective as somebody who's invested and interested in, in big cats and carnivores and things like that, maybe talk a little bit about the scale and the effort that goes into the anti-poaching. So firstly, it requires a lot of funding, <laughs> um, which which is pretty much any project that, that you want to do to to combat an issue as 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 wide scale as as what it is um so in terms of of assets if i can if i can put it that way so we've got quite a few motor motorcycles the motorcycles have changed the game completely for for the anti-poaching um they used the guys used to go out on the rangers used to go out, out on foot and um covering what what Qatar 11 alone is it's it's about just under 2000 square kilometers um that's 200,000 hectares which is what's that around f- almost 500,000 acres four and a half th- f- f- yeah somewhere around there um on foot with with three four teams is it's a fairly impossible task how many years is that going to take you to try <laughs> exactly <laughs> to get around exactly so so with with the introduction of the of the motorcycles it it's allowed our anti-poaching to to travel areas a lot quicker get and respond to to situations rapidly um and and it's just it's had a massive impact on on reducing the impact of of poaching in our area um along with that we've got we've got um a 22 heli a robinson heli 22 helicopter that's been dedicated to anti-poaching and that has also changed the game because what the bush bikes we call we call them bush bikes um, the motorcycles what they do in the forest the helicopter does in in the floodplain where it's open and you can actually you know you can you can see activity you can see um, guys lighting fires um, you can see fishermen walking there that don't have the licenses to fish there and and each each technical uh, you know introduction of the heli- the helicopter and introduction of the bikes just adds a adds a level of uh, effectiveness that that just you know it, it it has changed the game and in addition to that we've also started with um with a smart it's it's called smart um uh software so what that is it's 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 a program that's loaded loaded onto your mobile device so each ranger gets a gets a mobile device when they go out on patrol they're actively recording their their movements so it, it records gps locations they can see exactly where they're going. Um, they can record here's a gin trap, here's a snare. Um, if they arrest the poacher, they can take down the, that information. And that's also a way of, of reporting back what the guys are doing in the field. It's pretty sophisticated. Yeah. It's it's getting there and, and the, the technology is obviously evolving, which is, is suiting places like these. Um, they're obviously in in an in a landscape like this there are challenges because in places where there's 
mobile network coverage, you're able to uh, deploy certain other methods that work even better than what we have. But in a way, it's a blessing in disguise because it means that the poachers also can't communicate with each other. So it kind of cancels that out on both sides, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that there was no mobile network here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we both turned our phone on airplane mode when we got here. We're like, well, <laughs> <laughs> we're out. Talk out. to you later. <laughs> um, well, Willem, as you know, us coming in here and, and kind of seeing what's going on, and, and obviously we want to move a little bit into the cheetah stuff, but just as somebody who was given an opportunity to join this 24 Lions project, maybe just talk a little bit about what your what your hope is, what the vision is in, in terms of what you can accomplish here. And, and you know, we've, we've gotten some statistics and that kind of thing about this being, you know, not, I don't, I don't even know if you want to say arguably, but possibly the, the most successful lion conservation project in recent history. I mean, talk a little bit about that and, and, and what you hope to achieve and that kind of being part of your legacy. That sounds really cool. <laughs> um, but, but I think it is, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. From my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. In so terms of the expansion of the range for lions, I mean, it's phenomenal. It's, it, you know, what's also phenomenal is although that the story has got traction and it's we've seen it in some outlets that it hasn't had more. No. It, it, that's it's crazy to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think that I mean, even you and I who are pretty tapped into. Mm this world and, and this, you know, continent for sure, didn't know all the details of, of what this project is actually about. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's quite incredible. And it's, it's really nice to be involved in what is the, to date, <laughs> the largest introduction of lines into an area, um, which is the 24 lines. And it's in a way it's, it's, it's not about the number and it's not about the fact that it is the greatest, but what's, for me, what's, what's even better than that is, is bringing lions into an area where it can potentially sustain hundreds of lions, where a few years ago there were absolutely none left. And for me, that's, that's the, the most exciting thing, is, is monitoring this population into the future, making sure that, that they're, they're covered in a sense that we know what they're doing, where they're moving, we're dealing with the human-wildlife conflict issues, um, anything that pops up that we can try and respond to. And with the prey density in this area, the numbers of lions are certainly going up. Um, they're still only using a fraction of, of the ecosystem, so that's going to expand as well. And, um, you know, we just, I really can't, can't wait to see what happens next. For me personally, um, I'd really like to, to follow up with a, with a PhD on, on these lines. Um, I just think it's an incredible opportunity to to further as not obviously personal but further my career in in conservation and what a you know can't really think of a better project to do it do it at and do it you know partners to do it with um and obviously awesome species <laughs> um and yeah i just think that it's so so with with a phd it's it's you know, for me it's I don't want to be called a doctor at the end of the day. That's not, you know, it's obviously not what it's about. It's about really challenging yourself as a as a, a biologist and trying to um, add to to science. But what for me is is more than science is is the management side. Is to try and find out ways how can we 
effectively monitor and manage the species so that it becomes a stronghold because what's happening in Mozambique is that there's there's a revival of, of wildlife conservation from the south to the north. Um, the country's obviously gone through some, some turmoil, some really bad stuff, but they've come out a lot stronger. And um, there's areas that are popping up that are needing lions and... Um, what what I kind of foresee is that Zambezi Delta, the the lion population within the Zambezi Delta will become a in a way a source population to to feed into other areas, um, and that's kind of where that's if, real conservation. If, right if, there. if we get to that point, you know, that's what more do you want? To? Yeah. There's a one pretty big takeaway that I just want to reiterate here, or get you to re- reiterate, is that. We talk, particularly in in Europe, about rewilding, which is doing things kind of like what you're doing here, bringing a species back to a place that it previously existed. But you did something here, and Mark and the team, and like prior to you even arriving, first, and that was reestablish the foundation of the ecosystem. And I think that that component is often missing in those conversations. They say they want to pick the sexy animal. Let's bring back wolves. Let's bring back lions. Yeah, but it, it, is the ecosystem ready to take them? Whereas here, the the game numbers and the abundance was already growing exponentially before that step was taken. And I I, I think that making sure that people understand how much work went in before that is just so important because we all want to see the amazing, the amazing charismatic apex predators, but add 20 years or whatever it takes to get to that stage. There's a lot of fast tracking that I think people want to do. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think in, in, in our context, the, the kind of, conservation hero is, is actually Mark Aldane because he he was the one who identified the area. He found out that, or he came and looked at the area and said, this is an absolutely incredible area unlike any other place he's, he's been at before. The game is not there, but let's start an anti-poaching team with, with the money that we get from, from the hunters. And with that it, it started a uh, I want to say a career path, but it's a, a a lifestyle that that he's now kind of had to follow, and it's it's been an absolute, absolutely incredible journey because by bringing in the anti poaching, he's just been able to provide the protection that this ecosystem needs, and I obviously can't I, I can't say that I've witnessed witnessed the recovery, but even within the few years I've been here, you can see how the wildlife has recovered, and. It's it's kind of it's the people that identified the area, found this place and and said this is a place that needs it needs protection. It it, it can it can eventually have an apex predator, but what you need to do is make sure that you protect it first. With the protection, the wildlife will increase. As the wildlife increases, you can start to think about the apex predators, bringing in lions and all other kinds of carnivore species. Tyler and I have asked uh, all the biologists and people involved in conservation this question in the interviews over the last week. Is that clearly you're someone who's impassioned by by nature and particularly big cats. That's, that's what you live and breathe every day here. 
and yet you're clearly someone just from the few takeaways of conversation here who supports the hunting of them. How how on earth do you match that up? I mean, you spend so much time looking at data points and you know these animals. You know that this, this animal lost its cub because a male lion came in. Not that this has happened here yet because there hasn't been any huntings of, of lions, but leopards are hunted here. How, how, how do you make peace with that? So one, one piece of advice that, that someone once told me was it's not about the individual, it's about the species. And I think that's where, where the line is drawn for me is if you think about each individual animal and you think Cecil the lion, some bad hunter, some dentist from the States came and shot this collared lion. This is obviously not, not the greatest situation, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not about the individual animal, it's about the species. And for example, you can lose a, a lion to a collaring event. If you dose the, if you have incorrect dosage or, you know, you dart on a, on a, the very hot day and the lion doesn't wake up you, you've technically killed killed the lion and it's 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 through a management tool and again i just i just come back to the the the, the fact that if you're trying to manage an individual you are not really doing conservation you need to manage the species and so by doing that you need to manage the population and so one form of management, which we've discussed a little bit earlier, is, is trophy hunting. And um, unfortunately, there's just such backlash on, on trophy hunting at the moment. Um, and, and one can understand why, because it's not, it's not a pretty form of conservation. And um, people sitting at home, uh, I want to say the, the armchair conservationists, and you know, a lot of people fall into that category, and they can easily make decisions and and you know put bans in place that say for example banning leopard hunting in in southern africa or you know in you know botswana and namibia or wherever you know in various countries what impact that has what what the 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 imp, kind of indirect impacts that had, that has direct and indirect can be significant, and uh, there's there's quite a few people that have that have popped up recently that have been um, not necessarily advocates for trophy hunting, but they understand that it works, and what it provides is it provides protection in an area where no one wants to be. It's areas that are infested with tsetse flies, no tourist, no no five star lodge wants to be in an area where there's tsetse flies. Um, there's mosquitoes. There's tons and tons of mosquitoes that will give you malaria. <laughs> You'll, a lot of people will die. You know, it's 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 difficult areas. It's not always, um, you know, road networks are usually quite, you know, it's it's hard terrain. It's wet areas like we have here. Um, but those people don't see that. And one other aspect that they don't see is is the community side. And so with the trophy hunting. What, what we've managed to achieve here is, is to build up um, a great relationship with the, with the community based in the area. Um, and that's engaging with them on a regular basis. And, and that's through the, the hunter's dollars that's coming in. We've, we've started a, a beekeeping project for the community. 
there's meat that gets tribu- distributed to them that's that's been hunted from the area um, and significant amounts. We're talking on average about 66,000 tons of meat every year that gets distributed to the communities. Um, and, you know, we've, we've provided an agricultural field for them. Um, so what we... Apologies, I am diverting a little bit into the no, into the community it, side. Do it, villain. So this is important <laughs> because you know yeah. you, we you spend we spend a lot of time talking about the anti poaching, but yeah. with all the will in the world and all the anti poaching that you can facilitate, mm. if you don't have local community buy-in, yeah. you'll forever be fighting that war. Exactly. So that's that's why I think what what has been achieved here, for example, is is just it. It's kind of like a model that should be applied to other areas because a lot of areas don't have that. Um, and just, just to kind of complete the, or to add on to what I was saying earlier is, so there's the beekeeping project, which fully involves the community. There's the um, the agricultural field. Um, there's uh, fishing licenses that are handed out to, to guys to come and fish at certain times, fairly restricted, but it, you know, it provides them access. Um, and it provides us with knowledge of who's going out when, and if we find someone that doesn't have a license, we can take them out of the concession. Um, we've got the meat coming in. So there's various different projects that, that are fully trying to benefit the communities and benefit their, you know, their families. And they can, I mean, you can ask any one of these community members what, what they think about the, the hunting area, what they think about you know, the, the benefits that they get. They're all smiling. And um, hopefully tomorrow we're going to do that. Yeah. 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 With a translator. <laughs> yeah, you'll probably need a translator. <laughs> but, I can speak a little bit of Spanish, so get, get skate by with Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, you'll probably be fine. <laughs> um, Yo quiero oh, una más cerveza, por favor. Beer. You, how's your beer? Oh, cl- cl- close enough. Are you Mine's, still going good? Mine's empty. Empty, Tyler. <laughs> Furnish that man with the beer. Yes, sir. Um, Thank you. So we, we've talked a lot about the lions now, but now you're going to have to split your time because you now have Bomas full of cheetah sitting right beside where we're yeah. doing this podcast. I'm uh, already growing some gray hairs. <laughs> <laughs> you must be knowing what happened, you know, having a couple of years of the Lion Project under your belt now. With this stretching ahead of you, you must be so excited to see what's going to happen here. But maybe maybe anxious as well? Yep. Uh, as I said, I'm probably going to develop a few more gray, gray hairs um, in a few weeks' time. <laughs> um, with, the, with the cheetahs, we've, we've, um, we've identified that cheetahs have occurred here in the past. And that is the most important aspect when, when reintroducing a, a species. So... We had uh, uh, a kind uh, fellow called uh, Vincent van Amerva. He is from the Endangered Wildlife Trust. And he manages a, a cheetah metapopulation project, which is, is based in South Africa. But they try and manage a, a, a cheetah population within, within relatively small areas. Um, I was kind of being an exception. <laughs> um, they try and manage the, the cheetahs so that there's... Uh, gene flow between all these different reserves because what's happened in South Africa for example you've got quite a number of small fenced game reserves and they're able to sustain a certain number of of cheetahs but they can't sustain a sustainable population 
or they can't maintain a sustainable population. And so what the meta population does is it allows all those small reserves to act as one one large population, if if that makes sense. With the help of humans. Exactly. Yeah. And um, it wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be able to, you, you have to have that. There's no way of, of trying to work around it. So we, we I've always been, uh, you know, kind of a, a, f- a fan in a way of uh, advocate of, of that, that method because in a place like South Africa, it works. Um, you know, in a place like Namibia, we've got large open, open areas that kind of links to Botswana. It's a different scenario, but in, in the context where you've got small small areas, it works. And so, when was this? This was last year. Last year, end of last year. He No, sorry, two years ago, 2019. He popped in here. Um, just I think he was cruising through the area and, and managed to land up here. And um, he actually came and he thought, this is an excellent place to reintroduce Cheetah. And we, we got chatting and... Um, We've always Mark Aldane has always been he's kind of been keen on the idea, but you know where do you source cheetah from? It's it's not something that just <laughs> pops up. Just <laughs> right, go down the market, down yeah. the road. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so anyways, the the conversation started and and the discussion started, and those evolved, and there was a feasibility assessment that was done, and within that there was um, quite a I think for us quite a substantial moment and and that was when when we found a, a historical book from 1914 a book by the name of uh, an author by the name of Reginald Morgan and um, Reginald and uh, he was he was based in Kiliman which is roughly about an I want to say an hour's flight north east of us um, if I've got my bearings correct um, and he was he was based there? He was he was a Brit, and um, he recorded a whole bunch of stuff that we thought would never have been recorded. And one of those was was a cheetah occurred, what they call south of the Shipunga Forest, which is he says it says the plains of um, south of the Shipunga Forest, which is right here in our in our floodplain. And so we actually never knew that cheetahs occurred here. So even though we wanted to to reintroduce these cheetah. We actually had to go back and find like, well, did they actually occur here? Can we actually reintroduce them? Because it's it's kind of an important factor. Because if they didn't occur here, you kind of maybe bringing in animals that that never occurred here, and and that's got various implications. And so we found this document. It was a great book, and that gave us the the motivation to go the go ahead, and um, well, I guess the validation to go ahead. And uh, yeah, what's what's followed up with that is we've we've got a Boma six compartments with uh, eleven cheetahs, <laughs> which is just uh, a few years later. Who are about twenty five yards behind us, <laughs> <laughs> hoping for some snacks, and and that it, maybe maybe talk a little bit about that. You know, we've mentioned them looking hungry, but it, tell us about why you have them in a fenced in area. You know that that we call a Boma. And what that process is like for caretaking and, and prepping them and getting them ready for release. Yeah, so the when reintroducing a carnivore species, you've got kind of got two ways of, of releasing it. Two two main ways. One is is a hard release, so hard or hot release. And what that is is you 
translocate the animal. The animal comes from one area, it gets flown or driven to another area, and you just open up the gates and or, or if, it's, if it's in a crate, and <laughs> you just say, "Yep, good luck, cheers." What happens then is is those animals they're not acclimatized to the area. They don't know where they are. Um, they've just had a lot of stress traveling the whole the, the whole route. Whether you know with with cheetahs you don't sedate them. You you put them in a crate. With lions and leopards you, you'll probably sedate them or you will sedate them. Um, <laughs> don't want to be don't the want back of the plane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I saw that leopard last night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> being anywhere near yeah, even a mildly sedated leopard, we can talk about that afterwards. Yeah, well, we definitely can. Um, and so, okay, so you, you know, you bring them in, you you hot hot release them or hard release them. The animal is totally confused, and what happens then is you have major exploratory movements most of the time. Animals moving great distances, trying to figure out where the hell am I, and um, that can often lead to to them walking into areas that they shouldn't. Um, and so, so the the boma period we, we call the the these enclosures bomas um, and what they are it's, it's kind of an acclimation period so they must acclimatize to the area get used to vehicles if they if they are quite wild animals um, and it, it kind of provides that acclimation so that's why we put them in the enclosures is to prevent them from just moving off um, we, we want them to acclimatize get them used to the area once we open up the gate after let's call it four weeks which is kind of roughly what the the guidelines are, um, and it's kind of it depends on what your what your objectives are. Once you release that, they will usually stay around the boma for for a few days. Um, you usually give them give them one one feed outside a carcass, um, just so that they they stick around for a bit. And after that, they'll slowly start dispersing into the into the ecosystem, start meeting up with other animals, uh, start making their own kills because obviously they've been they've been fed for for a few weeks. Um, but all of these animals that are, that are in the bomas, they're all wild animals. They know how to hunt. Um, it doesn't affect their hunting ability at all. Um, so, yeah. And they're all collared. And so I, I imagine you're already getting all this data, but they're all sitting all yeah, clustered so, together. Right yeah. Now. So so with with the collars, um, why we put why we put collars on while they're still in the bomas is it prevents us from having to dart every single one. Again and and yeah, because yeah. with with darting animals, you know, there's it's always a risk that that things can go wrong, and so to do it unnecessarily is 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 not it's not fair on the animals. Um, and uh, so the the collars are set on on one GPS location a day, so it saves battery life. And um, how yeah. long will they last at that? So the the collars of the various animals. It, it depends on, on the animal. Oh, because um, you can put a bigger battery pack on Exactly. Yeah. So so what the, the GPS collars have is a, it's a, a GPS unit, satellite unit, which sits right on top. And at the bottom is the battery. It, it kind of provides the, the weight so that the, the the GPS unit stays facing up. Oh, so it's just countered. It, exactly. Oh, okay. but, but obviously you need the batteries. Yeah. <laughs> so with, um, with, the, with elephants, for example, you've got a, a counterweight right at the bottom. The whole unit sits on top of the elephant. And the counterweight is at the bottom, but it's got no batteries. The batteries are all sitting on top, just because it's it's large enough to to have that. But with a carnivore, with a cheetah, for example, they they're very slight animals. They weigh roughly between thirty five and and fifty kilograms, kind of on average, um, give or take. And so they're not they're not large animals. And with a collar, you want the collar to weigh 
not more than 2% of, of the body weight of the animal. Because otherwise you might impede their ability to hunt. Exactly. And and I would guess there has been studies in the past to see whether the collars of that weight do affect them. I yeah. Assume. And so generally you, you won't find that it affects them much. Okay. Um, but, you know, you you do need the research to show that. But, you know, there's been tons of animals collared and it's 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 not really at the point where it's detrimental well to the animal. Yeah. yeah. And what you know the, the collars have also developed over time and the, the ones that they've that we that we've chosen is it, it fits really well around the animal's neck. So there's very little rotation of the collar around the neck. Um they're also camouflaged so I mean you often have to look two, three times just to see whether the animal's got a collar or not. Um and and you 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 know you have the collar that it's not it's not too loose not too tight. Um, as the animal grows, you don't want the animal to to have a tight collar because that can obviously lead to complications. But you you fit the collar so that it 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 fits perfectly around the neck. What are you expecting to see in a couple of weeks' time once these cheetah go out? So with with the release, we'll we'll probably plan it so that it's about f- a four week boma period. Um, and with that, it's opening the gates. As I said, you you will provide a, a carcass. <laughs> and the wind uh, has changed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's fine. You can you can just lean back because I'll just turn our mics off. Okay. When in the podcast is fine. So so with the release, we will pretty much open open the gates. The the cheetahs, as you've seen, they're quite relaxed. Um, you know, you you can approach them on foot. They they're not too too concerned with with people, um, which which is great, um, and and that allows us, you know, in future as well to, if we need to dart them, then they're not scared of us, um, which is which is great because here the the grass does get quite tall, and and to be able to do that, it, yeah. it becomes a bit of a challenge, particularly in the wet season, in in, in the dry season we've got, uh, you know, the grass is a lot shorter, so it, it becomes a lot easier, um, but with the release, we'll we'll expect the cheetahs to remain. Uh, within within the area for a few days we we witnessed this with the lions um it was roughly around a week or two weeks that that they stuck around and again that that just allows them to not to bolt off after they've after you've opened up the gate so the most important thing is is that they are just used to the area that they move gently as opposed to rapidly and trying trying to bugger off <laughs> I guess um, and and so in the bigger picture we, we've based on on prey densities and and uh, preferred prey species of, of what the cheetah might might feed on um, what what has been seen in other places the the carrying capacity that that this area could sustain is is roughly around 120 130 maybe um, I'm always quite cautious to to apply carrying capacity values to carnivores because that you know those those models they exclude the anthropogenic effects so you know snares and people and all that kind of stuff um you know it excludes lions coming in and causing disruption and you know killing off a few individuals um so you've got all these factors that you have to consider natural and and human induced factors that that can impact the success of of the project or of yeah you know, of this cheetah project it's fascinating and i'm so excited having had the opportunity to spend some time here and 
learn from the people on the ground to follow this project now forward. Both 24 Lions and the Cheetah Project, which we've actually seen from from day one of having their paws on the dirt here. So I, in, in, the, in a tiny way, I, I feel a little bit invested. Oh, no, we're definitely yeah, invested. I, I, feel, yeah. I feel like I, I am invested in the, the success of this now because I've seen how much work goes in with my own eyes. So you're going to have to make sure that you keep us up to date. <laughs> it's no problem. <laughs> um, one of the last question for me, uh, Willem, is you have a long career ahead of you. What what do you see as uh, the future for conservation in Africa and the challenges that that it faces? Because it's a difficult landscape to achieve the kind of success that has been achieved here is not common. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's. I guess a discussion that probably doesn't have one one answer. It's conservation is is such a broad and diverse topic i mean there's so many different aspects that one has to consider and it's it's so difficult i mean within each country you've got various different organizations trying to achieve similar things but they've got different objectives so you've in a way you've you've got you've got the the institutions and the the ngos kind of um, you know, not not necessarily agreeing on things, and that also makes things challenging. Um, but in terms of of the bigger scheme of things, I've, I've, I mean, I've got I've got hope for Africa. I think there's there's a lot of good coming out of countries like Mozambique. Um, there's there's a lot of challenges. I think the major ones from the wildlife side are bushmeat bushmeat poaching. Um, Community encroachment into areas, human wildlife conflict, which which associates with that, and uh, I think probably the most important thing is is trying to prioritize areas that that can that that are viable for wildlife conservation in future. Because I think the one of the 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 most wasteful things is is trying to conserve small areas that have got zero impact on conservation and so using that funding in areas that actually can contribute on a larger scale um, and it comes to a there's a concept that that we were taught in in university called conservation triage and it's, it's pretty much you know identifying areas that are required for uh, that should be prioritized you know in rank order of of what what should be conserved you know what what is the mo- what is the main priority so you know areas like these where you've got two um just over two million acres and uh unfortunately with these large areas you've you have those those uh those major impacts of of bushmeat poaching the community encroachment and so i think in terms of the the hunting areas i would say the most important thing is establishing anti-poaching that is effective and that are able to to patrol the area effectively. That they can remove the anti-poaching, uh, remove the poaching threats, remove the the poachers from the areas, um, and trying to sustain wildlife within those areas 
will come along with that. So the most important thing is, is to protect it and and the wildlife will increase from that. Um yeah, it's it's not it's not an easy <laughs> easy answer. Um Are you gonna this is where you're not necessarily exactly here, but I, I can't imagine and we haven't even talked about the leopard yet. We're gonna have to touch on that very briefly. I but I can't imagine given the kind of work that you've been involved in, that you're ever gonna to wanna to leave this place. I mean, where do where do you go from here? <laughs> where do you go from here? I don't I don't really know how you how you raise the bar in terms of uh, you know for most people in a career it's like you're always going to the next thing that's a little bit more exciting that's supposed to be the better and build on. And obviously, you're, <laughs> you're continually building a knowledge base and understanding, but. I'm not entirely sure if you can really top the kind of level of excitement of the stuff that you do on a day-to-day basis now. No, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're pretty much, you know, flying, you're done. flying helicopters all day and yeah. messing around with lions and putting collars on animals. You know, it's it's just an incredible project to be involved in and um, fortunate to be in a team that, that is just so passionate about the same things. Um, trying to conserve the landscape, trying to conserve the species, better understand them. Um, yeah, and I think with a great team, a uh, great place, awesome project, awesome donors, it's, it is pretty much a dream job. And uh, I don't think there's really much out there at the moment that, that could top this. <laughs> I've got a great idea for all the people who are thinking about, uh, well, hang on, let's let's hear about this crazy leopard story. We're going to do that in another podcast with a different person who is also there. <laughs> so now you're just going to have to tune into another episode. But there is one thing that I just want to wrap up with is, you know, there'll be a lot of people, and I, and I get these emails fairly frequently when I have, well, all my guests are amazing on the podcast, and they tend to do really cool things like this. And I think that a lot of people feel like that's another world. It's kind of completely out with the reach of anything that they could possibly ever do. But speaking particularly to younger people who are still have the opportunity to study something at university and to pursue this kind of stuff, what would you say to them about channeling a life that fulfills this kind of existence? Because it is possible. This A lot of this stuff seems completely impossible. You've done it. Did you think you'd be able to do something like this when you were like leaving high school and thinking about studying at university? I guess it was it was probably always a dream, but never really within the reality realm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think the most important bit of advice that I would give is 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 work experience and and qualifications. Um, I think what what's kind of in the conservation world. A, a bit of a negative thing at the moment is is just trying to you know have as many qualifications as you can, but not not actually having the field experience, um, not having worked with with organisations and and you know the the bigger names that that really give credibility to to people's careers, um, and so for for the younger younger people out there that are interested in in going down the conservation route, um, there's so many options. And I think it's it's important to identify what what your passion is and what you're good at. Um, and so, for example, if you are interested in if you really enjoy reptiles and you think that's your that's your thing, 
and you're very good at collecting them, why not pursue a career in that? Don't think that, okay, this, this person is doing something on elephants. That's also cool, but you know, should I, I should rather do that because that's what everyone else is doing. It's, do what you enjoy doing because that's, that's where you'll get the most joy out of it and where you'll probably have a long, longer future in, a longer career in. And so for me personally, I identified the fact that I really enjoyed con- carnival conservation. I like the cats and it's, you know, it's, it's something that I'll never, ever get bored of. Um, and knowing that and you know being able to work in 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 you know various various countries Malawi and Namibia and now Mozambique as well um it really is i think important to identify what what you want to do what what is your what are your goals what are your ambitions and i think it's it's difficult for youngsters because youngsters tend to you know when when you're fresh out of varsity or whether you're deciding what you want to do to study you kind of not really sure you've got absolutely no idea but that's where the work experience comes in if, if you start volunteering in places if you start um you know just putting your cv out there and and, and um you know showing that you're interested you're keen then then things will happen and sometimes it's a bit of a slow process um but i always trust the process i think that if if you if you if you haven't got the ticket you can't win so if you've got the ticket <laughs> you stand a chance to to be involved with some incredible projects and uh i think what goes along with that is just having a personality and a the right attitude towards it um don't be an asshole pretty much <laughs> that's a good rule pretty pretty much because that's i mean you you it's a really important point i was actually speaking to the the other filmmakers here here the other day and we were talking about like people we like to work with and just being being good with people and mm. just just generally being a nice person yeah. and being willing to like listen and learn from other people exactly. is such a huge part because then you you're it's amazing you get the invite mm. yeah come and spend a couple of months here and learn from these people exactly and you might have to you know that, there might be a sacrifice in that you might mm. they might just feed you for the yeah. couple of months yeah. that's your payment and you're gonna graft and you're gonna not sleep but I mean one day when you're dying in your bed you'll have stories <laughs> you're gonna have a lot <laughs> yeah. yeah including a lot of leopard stories and yeah. lion stories and cheetah stories and yeah well i i know we gotta we're we're closing this up here but you know one of the things i just wanted to briefly ask you is about is is, is obviously that this this place this project 24 lions and now the cheetah was was obviously if not entirely funded, mostly funded through the Cabela Family Foundation and, and hunting dollars. And um, I think, you know, we, we, we had the chance to talk to Dan about his vision for their foundation and what they hope to do. And, and his answer to that, to put it simply, is that he's hoping to be a catalyst and to show that, uh, basically to try to inspire other organizations to participate in the same way whether they're hunting related or not and i think that when you talk about there's hope for africa i mean we all cling to that in a sense and maybe in that same you know same vein of advice to future conservationists or biologists who maybe read something online or or see thing in news what does that look like to you for the ability 
for a, a hunting-based nonprofit organization or, or an NGO or traditional conservation groups to work together and pool those resources to do something greater? It's a really good question because I think um, what tends to happen is that there, there is a split and um, there's money in, in both realms, if I can call it that way. There's, there's money in, in, the troph- in, 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 the, in the hunting industry realm and there's also in, in the NGO realm. And I think, again, it, I guess it comes down to, to attitudes and, and having um, objectives that are in line with conservation as opposed to um, you know, kind of individualistic views because I think with with the NGO side is that there's often an anti-hunting position that's held a perspective that's held and from the hunting side there's often a we just get you know, negative feedback all the time so let's not associate with them but there, there's certainly a I think a, a a niche or a there there is an ability for for those two worlds to to merge and um, I think with with the right partners in place partners that can facilitate that so for example an an Ivan Carter Wildlife Conservation Alliance uh, organization that that is one that that bridges that gap so for example we've had people coming here that are that are actually non hunters but they participate in the conservation because they see the landscape. They aren't necessarily anti-hunting. They're you know, not necessarily for hunting, but they understand why it's done. And I think it, it comes down to having conversation with people and explaining what is actually going down because it's easy to look at an area and say, oh, that's a, or, you know, for, let's call it anti-hunters, to look at an area and say, the hunter, why would I ever be involved? But if you explain the history of this area, there's no ways that you can look at it and say anti-hunters are causing destruction and havoc all over Africa. It's, this is a model that has shown how with the right methods in place, with the trophy hunting, wildlife has, unlike any other place, has recovered. And uh, I think it comes down to having conversation with people and, and explaining that. And that's often, I think, missed is, is it, it often comes down to the argument initially and then nothing happens from there. But it should start from, from a story and the story should be exactly what's, what's happened on the ground and explaining to people, having those people come out and see the area, see that it's not an easy area to, to ha- you can't just set up an ecotourism lodge here with five-star meals and all that. It's just... It cannot sustain that. Um, it, it cannot support that. And once people know the story and they come out to see the area, I think that's when when their minds start to change, when they see the wildlife in these areas coming back, when they see how the communities benefit from from the the hunters coming in, you know, the meat going towards them, uh, uh, to them, um, funding coming in, to, to fund the agricultural field, um, and so uh, obviously it's not, again it's not it's not one one simple solution, but I think it it comes down to both effort, but both both sides doing effort to to try and bridge that gap. And on that advice and optimistic note, <laughs> Willem, thank you very much. Under the moonlight in Mozambique, we will bring this podcast to a close and uh, go and have dinner. 
Great. Unlike the teachers, we're going to have to wait till tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. They'll, they'll be all right. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Cheers. <laughs>